This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 73. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Daryl Stanley, professor of finance at Pepperdine Graziadio School of Business. As some of you may know, I'm in the process of getting my MBA at Pepperdine, and coming into school, I wanted to do an interview with one of my professors whose class I not only enjoyed, but was also relevant to our mission with the podcast. That has led me to my guest, Professor Daryl Stanley, my professor for finance, to share his wealth of knowledge and experience with you all today. I love Professor Stanley's class because it was as old school as it gets, and he remained focused on teaching us the traditional value investing principles passed down from the greats, from Benjamin Graham to Warren Buffett, and we even spent time at the beginning of one class discussing Professor Sanjay Bakshi's contributions to the world of investing. The goal for this episode is to take you to class with me, with one of my favorite professors to discuss a topic we all know and love, finance and investing. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 73, and I would like to welcome Daryl Stanley, Professor of Finance at Pepperdine Graziadio School of Business. Professor, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on. I think I can answer a number of questions that you might be interested in. Are you sure about that? You know, I, I hope so. <laughs> I just hope so. So let's Good. see what we got. All right. Well, first things first, like I do with all of my guests on the program, is what is your background and how'd you get your start in finance and investing? Actually, I'm going to start with how I got my interest in finance first, oh. because it goes back to my high school days of all things. Mm-hmm. I'm from a town called Piedmont, California, across from San Francisco. And I was fortunate to be in a town, a small town, with a tremendous number of investment bankers. So Blythe and Company, um, Schumann Agnew, uh, uh, Brush Slocum, a number of New York Stock Exchange member firms, partners, managing partners, lived in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And above all, uh, I looked out every morning for, at breakfast at my own house, my parents' house, and I would see the home of Dean Witter. And Dean Witter at that time owned Dean Witter. He was managing partner of Dean Witter and Company, which was one of the three major wire houses in America of that date before it merged into Morgan Stanley. So I was involved with that whole sphere. And at an early age, before it was actually legal, my dad set up an account uh, with Jay Barth. And uh, it was, again, another regional New York Stock Exchange member firm. And um, I started dealing with small over-the-counter situations. Leslie Salt, Almaden Vineyards, Sierra Railroad Company. We're not talking about micro-cap. We're talking obscure cap um, with a few shareholders and having fun buying and not so much selling, but at the appropriate time selling and moving on. Ah, yes, Del Monte's Properties Company, Pebble Beach, and ability <laughs> to play golf for free. So that was got me interested in the topic of finance, and then I went on to Berkeley, got a degree in finance, then ended up starting an MBA program there, and then ended up at USC getting both a uh, master's and doctorate in finance. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a flow through, a flow through uh, <laughs> that came through from just being uh, the germination of being around people that were in finance. Mm-hmm. And did you did you work in industry as well? Was that part of your career trajectory? Uh, my goal was actually not to teach. My goal was actually to spend all my time in the investment world. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, I started uh, uh, actually in the investment world and ended up teaching um, kind of by accident in the sense that 
I was working on my doctorate. They liked me, and they gave me a lectureship in finance. Mm -hmm. And I started teaching the core undergraduate corporate finance class at USC. And I noticed that I was able to entice a couple of students into the field of finance. Mm -hmm. Not many, a handful, whatever, <laughs> uh, in, in a year or semester, as the case may be. And I found that very intriguing. And that's one of the reasons I decided, regardless of my involvement in the investment world, I was going to do some form of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, as it turned out, the first years here at Pepperdine, I was full-time elsewhere and teaching at Pepperdine. And the last 15 or so years, I've been more full-time here and kind of secondary elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you actually already kind of alluded to my next question as to, you know, when you did start teaching and, and also talked a bit about, you know, what inspired you. But... What what led you to stick with it? As you said, you didn't really, you kind of fell into teaching by accident, but why'd you just keep going along with it when you were like, ah, I want, I'd rather be in the field? It was basically the Pepperdine program mm -hmm. and the ability to teach in the Pepperdine program in the executive program that was taught on weekends. <laughs> and so I could actually work full-time in the security brokerage, uh -huh. getting up at those god-awful hours on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And um, still teach Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as the case may be for the executive program, uh, and kind of traveling around the country. So at those days, we did it Honolulu, we did it Houston, we did it Dallas, we did it in San Francisco, mm -hmm. other locations as well. So it was a neat kind of respite. Um, and so um, with that being fortuitous enough to be able to teach that, it kind of meshed with business. And the other thing, business individuals, corporations appreciated the fact I was teaching. So it was also a compliment, to be honest with you, in getting some business. Mm -hmm. It worked both ways. It right. worked both ways nicely. Right. So now let's, you know, get into the nitty gritty. You know, I, we spent a whole semester on this. So uh, we're going to try and condense it into an hour long interview. And basically what I'm, I'd love to know and, and share with our audience is, you know, you've been in doing this a long time now. You know, what's your criteria when you assess a potential new investment? Assuming it's not a VC or an IPO. So we're talking about already public companies. Mm -hmm. Obviously, my starting point, and I've been overly emphasizing even more of recent date, is I want to see the ability of the sales dollar to expand. And I want to see that in every venture or investment I'm going to undertake. I want to see that ability to bring sales in first, because if they can run their company competently as good managers, they should be able to bring it down to the bottom line. So my focus is on sales first. Where and, and to a certain degree, it depends on the type of size of the company. So if it's a micro cap, uh, obviously I'm looking for a disruptive orientation to the company and its skill set in order to capture the sales dollar in some way or another. I'm rather broadly uh, attuned to the definition of disruptive. For example, Boston Beer at the right time to me was a disruptive company. Mm -hmm. It was taken on the big brewers. Um, you get a small uh, vineyard uh, winery that's taken on the gallows of the world with a different product line. That is disruptive in the broader context of the term, not like an Uber or some other very important disruptive factor. But it had to have some characteristic like that. Small cap, I'm basically looking, uh, micro cap would fall into that. I'm looking to the past three years and one year. And I always am looking for at least a 10.3 uh, increase in uh, revenues, sales as the case may be. And again, people ask me, well, where'd you get that number? And uh, it, it's, it's, it comes back to something. Is it a percentage? It, it is a percentage. And it's actually unrelatable to most things that you would consider that you would actually look to on a financial viewpoint. But I'm a firm believer in the number seven. I think it's, it's a Christian, it's the, the seventh day. Uh, uh, being a sailor, the importance of the seventh wave. And uh, so basically I said, okay, let me take the number 72, which is the reference point for doubling money. And I said, how many, what rate does it take me to get seven years? And that's basically how I came up with a 10.3. So I looked at as a reference point. Okay. Oh, as a reference, it's gotta basically be able to do that. And more importantly, not ex post, ex ante. What's it gonna really do in the future? Um, you basically using as, as a way to 
to cull out the many, many choices you have. Mm -hmm. So you got to start somewhere. You can't cover them all. Sure. That's the way to simply start out. Um, and likewise, I do that for larger cap companies as well. And uh, um, 10 3 can be a little less because of the nature of the size of the company. Um, but I'm also looking for a five year record. So five, three, and one. And I want them to commit it to that growth rate scenario mm -hmm. and bring it down to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And then you do your analysis, your classical financial analysis. Because <coughs> right. I was going to say, you know, it, it's one thing to just look at revenues growth, but you also want to see, you know, profitability. You want to see that they're making money because they could be growing 10.3% year over year, but they could also, their expenditures could also be yeah. rising at the same time. I am at, it depends on which size stage or size of company sure. we're looking at. At the initial stages, I'm not overly concerned about profitability. Okay. I am more concerned about the product, the ability to have the sales dollar to that disruptive product, and the type of management team they have that be able to implement financial discipline when financial discipline is really required. Mm -hmm. So where are we on the S-shaped growth curve, Schumpeter's S-shaped growth curve, will dictate how much I am worrying about earnings. Um, all cases I'm worrying about potential sales or real sales. Um, but then you look at management capability to bring it to the bottom line. And as the company matures, getting that profitability and bringing up the return on equity, mm -hmm. which is one of the numbers that I am very fastidious about. I like high ROEs. I like high ROEs that are stable. Okay. And this way, it gives me an indication of a good management team. Mm -hmm. So let's get into that actually on management team. What are some of the qualities that you look for on uh, with management, C-suite executives, board of directors? What do you look for? I actually am old fashioned. And so I'm looking to a management team. First of all, just a general assessment, are they capable? And that's not necessarily where they got their degrees. It's what they've done, how they talk, uh, what the topics of interest to them are. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm looking for a management team that has, again, communication, uh, getting employees to have a willingness to serve, and have a dedicated workforce that has a common purpose of what they want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things is I want them not to give me a grandiose plan. I want them to kind of narrow it down and say, you know, we're going to be the best, the best at X. Mm -hmm. Maybe Y. If we're really lucky, a company can do Z as well. Mm -hmm. But usually it's X. And um, uh, that's what I'm looking for first. Then you're also sitting there and asking them uh, in a traditional management sense, um, Kunsuna Donald, uh, how do they plan, how do they organize, how do they staff, how do they control, how do they direct, how, what kind of safety concerns for the employees they have. Standard litany questions that are just fundamental that tells you about the character of the management team. Mm -hmm. Also, one other characteristic that I've always asked is to whoever the CEO, leader, COO, whatever the dominant person is uh, in the organization, who's going to replace you if you were to drop dead this afternoon of a heart attack? Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a clear answer, then I have to put a question mark around this company. Because unfortunately, I've seen a number of CEOs die of heart attacks seen them have accidents, unfortunately, that just plain occur in life. Uh, or sometimes they've had a close person like their wife become sick and they lose interest in the company. For understandable reasons, they've got to move on. And do they have someone that can step in that afternoon mm -hmm. and take over the role of the company? Mm -hmm. And this is, frankly, to tell you the truth, 101 Warren Buffett. Nothing new that he hasn't said. There's nothing new that Warren Buffett has ever said that hasn't been said numerous times. It's his ability to put the whole thing together in a meaningful pattern and do a heck of a good selection of companies that have good sales potential. <laughs> so what would you say then, you know, in your career when you've been putting together your investment strategy and all your criteria and then on the fundamental side as well, what would you say helped you gain your edge? You know, what, what was it for you that helped you become, uh, find, find, you know, uh, those selections that ultimately uh, made you the, the success you are today? A junior Warren Buffett, and I mean junior, <laughs> uh, 
where he is the senior, if not a, above the seniors, was my ability to actually listen. And in those days, especially I'm now speaking a little bit to the past, companies sharing their financial statements with you. And I could go through and see um, different characteristics that were positive or negative. Mm -hmm. So um, simplistically, you use the uh, DuPont system of looking at the margin, the turnover, and the equity multiplier. Uh, but that's just a starting point. That's a, a simple calculation. It's looking deeper and seeing what is going on positive and negatively. So you pick up things. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I was very interested in this company extremely interested in this company. Sales were doing well. In fact, they were doing booming sales. And I started looking at a little thing called warranty reserve. Mm -hmm. And I discovered the warranty reserve was going down sharply. Hmm. And what was the situation? Well, they were shipping goods before they were actually tested or completed in order to book revenues at the end of the month and then bringing them back and repairing them under warranty reserve. Mm. That is a negative. Of course, it pulls down profitability. Ultimately, you have to replenish the warranty reserve. Uh, and it was manipulating sales into reportable periods. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, I'm talking more about quarterlies than, than, than monthlies, but they tried to ship appropriately monthly, too. That's an example of what I call tearing down the financials. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, not all managements are honest. Uh, they have their interests uh, at heart, uh, their employees at heart, that uh, basically uh, might mislead a potential investor. Mm -hmm. One of the other characteristics, as you would know well, is my old friend, uh, free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And um, for those of you out there that don't understand free cash flow, free cash flow is uh, net income after tax. We're all familiar with that. We add to that the non-cash outlays depreciation for hard assets, amortization for intangibles, depletion for natural resources. And we get something that's talked about all the time in finance, and all the talking heads still refer to the idea of cash flow. So that's summation of those two are cash flow. Depending on the size of the company, required dividends, which is in quote, because once you start a dividend policy, you should not change it. They certainly not reduce the absolute dividend in any case. Uh, but, of course, a lot of small companies have no dividends, so that's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But they will have capital expenditures. Mm -hmm. So from cash flow, you have to reduce that capital expenditure. In finance, but many of your readers might not know, in finance, capital expenditures includes the increase in working capital. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about the entire dollar amount necessary to do something. Mm -hmm. Then you end up with free cash flow. Right. For larger companies, I want a depositive. I want to see ability to advance at a nice growth rate. For embryonic companies, quite often we end up with a negative free cash flow. Then the question becomes, how are they going to fund that financial requirement? Well, they're down to either some form of debt or some form of equity. Mm -hmm. So you really have to focus in on those characteristics because you can be diluted. Mm -hmm. And dilution is a negative. Uh, I've seen very few cases where they have had substantial dilution. The stock price does not fall. It can falter in some cases. Most likely it's going to fall. And then hopefully they put the money to work. We see it in the bottom line, either revenues or something that gives you the positive implication. And then the stock price recovers. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in the stock price declining. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to see what ability they can get good financial terms on debt. And of course, at the same time, Back to our DuPont uh, analysis, you can't have too much leverage, especially in a small company, because of the variability of the business cycle, and we don't want a bankruptcy. Right. And so you got all these are fine balancing. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I love about finance is everyone can kind of get a master thing to look at, but it's a puzzle. You have to look at this, look at that, and sometimes this means, oh, God, it should mean a detriment to the company no it's not too bad because they have this other characteristic that is covering that deficiency mm -hmm. so it's it's an ad subtract game to finally you want more ads positive for the company than the negatives every company has positive negatives right. and so simple as that so 
you know, I remember when I first got started investing, especially when I really started digging into the financials and especially after your class, I realized that the mistakes I was making back in the day was that, you know, I would just look at net income, you know, I'd say, oh, profitable, great. You know, they're making money, but I wouldn't really look at free cash flow because I just assumed, oh, they have the net income, they have the money in the bank, like that'll feed everything else that they're trying to do. You know, is this a common mistake that you see amongst students? I see it as a common mistake among a lot of investors, <laughs> let alone students, um, and including sometimes professionals. And even I have uh, not taken a closer look at the company, and I've been fooled later on by saying, oh, I should have caught that one. Um, um, yeah, because, you know, this free cash flow also has one other characteristic that's very important. When you do have that positive, even among smaller companies, I like to see a positive because one of the other characteristics you can use it for is a strategic acquisition. And in today's environment, more than ever before, because of the nature of how we moved into the informational age and the type of businesses we have today, mm -hmm. you will have to make an acquisition to fill out some component of your company that you all of a sudden realize has to be filled in order to accomplish the task, or Things have changed, and you've got to pull this company in. Mm -hmm. This means you're going to have to make an acquisition, and that means either for cash or for stock is the way it's been going of date. Mm -hmm. And basically, there has been more for stock than for cash, and that's why your major companies like Google and, and uh, Apple have so much cash, even in face of making acquisitions, because these acquisitions have been done on a stock basis. That's why they have so much goodwill. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that's another characteristic. When you get too much goodwill, is the value really there in earning power? Because uh, in my opinion, one of the bigger problems you're going to face in the next 10 years is how we face, in a downturn, what are we going to do about goodwill? Mm -hmm. And as we come into a downturn, a lot of that goodwill becomes questionable. And I observed this recently. I wrote a paper with another professor that dealt with the acquisition and uh, really the carrying value of goodwill that was vastly overstated. This is a major Japanese company, and vastly overstated, which should be substantially written down. Mm -hmm. And so this is coming for the future as we have a business cycle, which has to occur. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness, we are well beyond the time when we should have had a business downturn. I forgot what writer, and I know one of my listeners is going to correct me on it, um, but uh, I it might well. I know in uh, in Dear Chairman, uh, there was a chapter on diversification, mm -hmm. you know, and this idea of uh, growth through M and A, growth through acquisition, mm -hmm. and that you know that's that's ultimately not where you really want to see your company go in terms of. Uh, but but that's that that's just what the the chapter was arguing. But you know, it's really up to the management team to really try and 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 make it work. Uh, I. I'm very skeptical of Goodwill, as I just said, yeah. but I'm not against companies going out and buying companies. Sure. Uh, what I'm skeptical of, of them overpaying for that particular company. You see a lot of that, which then it comes back to haunt you later on. Um, and then many times they read into the acquisition more good things than really result in the main uh, acquisitions have... Uh, uh, probably less than 50% of them have been uh, clean. The rest of them all turned messy one way or the other, from a financial viewpoint usually. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the synergisms, the savings, just don't materialize anywhere to the extent they want. And uh, have done a number of uh, valuations, I must confess. The purchase price allocation gets a little questionable. Uh, it gets chunked into goodwill because they basically have overpaid for the company. Mm -hmm. Not, and, and, and in this informational aid, by the way, you're going to have less hard assets that you're going to write up. So by definition, you're going to have more goodwill as the informational age takes over and the hard asset industrial revolution fades. Mm -hmm. So I want to actually touch on that point of valuation. You know, you've been, again, doing this for a long time. You know, what, what are you seeing right now in terms of valuations? I mean, how has that changed over the years? You touched on it already when you're talking about goodwill and whatnot, but, um, you know, what, what, have, what have you seen change over the years? The most dramatic change has been the shift away from fundamentals and the willingness to be patient 
for something to work out. So when I started doing research in investments in Berkeley in 1962 and used Benjamin Graham's book, Graham, Dodd, and Cottle's Security Analysis, 1962 edition, the average holding period of a stock was eight years. Eight years! And we tended at that time to believe in Benjamin Graham, so we used the Benjamin Graham Warren Buffett valuation model with AAA and all that. And I became intrigued. I thought that was the only way to do valuations. Uh, and th basically, the thing about uh, that modeling that uh, Benjamin Graham Warren Buffett puts together is the underlying assumption the markets are not efficient. And therefore, someone doing its research, examining things, can come up with a fundamental valuation based on financial strength, not market volatility and make appropriate buys. And both of them have different criteria of what price to book, pardon me, price to intrinsic value they want. Um, but in general, good deal, less than 80 uh, cents on the dollar, a bad deal, over $1.20. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that, that's what I basically followed. And let the time work out, three to five years, for a good idea to work its way through when you had an eight-year holding period. You also had higher transaction costs, so you didn't really want to get rid of the stock, um, and so and, and your capital gains as well. Um, so you wanted to basically, ideally, hold it for the rest of your life, and then your state takes the capital gains problem at a humongous big differential. Mm -hmm. um, but over the years, that's changed. Uh, fundamentals have become less important, um, probably due to more fear of the economy and the instability of government. Um, you know, coming up in the 1950s and 1960s, it was basically a kind of confidence in the government, no matter who was in office, which party was in office. There wasn't a heck of a big difference between the parties back then. Mm -hmm. um, um, so uh, you, you just kind of went with the flow. Then it changed, and all of a sudden, it from, from a relationship basis, a relationship investment banking, it became a transaction investment banking and became a relationship banking, uh, pardon me, securities purchases, it became transactions, shorter time sequences, holding the stock for a shorter period, quicker profit orientation. It's kind of what Benjamin Graham said at the tail end of his life, uh, and this was, my goodness, this would be probably late 60s, um, so we're talking a long time ago. He was shocked at the way analysts looked at companies and their short-term fixation on earnings or some other short-term variable and said this leads to problems. Number one for an economy, it leads to uh, volatility, which means increased risk, which means higher required rate of returns, which means basically higher costs and a lower damning to the economy. Mm -hmm. So the economy gets hurt with a short-term orientation. Um, but you sometimes can't fight City Hall. And um, so this is the biggest, the biggest shift is the abandonment of fundamentals, not exclusively, but more lip service to fundamentals, and moving more into short-term gains orientation, however done, but grouped, of course, as technical. Mm -hmm. And um, that, I think, is the biggest change, and one of the things that I have not been able to really quickly adapt to, one of the things investors should always keep track of, your, your philosophy, holding to your philosophy, being dedicated to that philosophy, but not putting your head in the sand. Things change, and you do have to change a little bit with the times. But, oh my gosh, it's just almost nothing to, to do with fundamentals. just, what the heck did the price do yesterday or anticipate to do tomorrow? And people chase it, and... Um, I think that's why you have so many sad stories of people that became day traders only to end up being busboys at the restaurant as they went through their fifty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars or whatever amount of money they had, they blew. Mm -hmm. um, gamblers ruin, and um, it's tough. And above all, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to be disciplined beyond comprehension, and you're going to have to be there literally tick by tick if you're going to play that game. Um, I don't think I'm so dedicated to be wanting to follow things tick by tick. Uh, the idea of watching the screen all day, every day, is not my idea of fun. Um, so um, 
And I'm not sure if I'm clairvoyant enough to pick up on all that. Uh, I'll be honest with you, some people are. One person, strangely enough, my wife is. She is a better technician than I am, and she can watch the tape uh, and really watch uh, accumulation uh, by small blocks and large blocks as she sees stocks under accumulation or disbursement. Uh, I, don't, I can't quite see that, so I leave it to those that are more clairvoyant than I. Okay. <laughs> I've got to have a little model that tells me to do X and Y, which I have confidence in. And like anything else, that model will not always work. My gosh, it will fail you. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to recognize that uh, you will lose money. Um, there's no such thing as a fail-safe model. Mm -hmm. um, simple as that. I mean, do you still do that extra uh, bit of due diligence where you do contact management teams, or do you kind of... Uh, have other metrics that you uh, I, I would like to get if I'm really going to get into a big position something I will do that oh, okay. um, I, I do a lot of putzing around with a few stocks be honest with you at my age of 74 I'm defending my portfolio sure. and worrying now I don't need to make anything I just got to keep the sucker <laughs> to take sure. my me and my wife through retirement and her death at 90 something or other so um, um, we shifted into more um, uh, long-term uh, index investing with ETFs, which I, of course, become very familiar with and written a number of articles on because I think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, and so, and I think it will continue to dominate excessively uh, investment world. And um, um, I just found it very, very interesting, especially as we moved away from static indexes to basically active portfolio management within the context of an ETF, which uh, should change its name from exchange-traded funds to electronically-traded funds. And the initials still say the same ETFs, and I find myself saying electronically-traded more than exchange because they're traded everywhere. And um, uh, so um, they've really become an instrument that uh, I've initially missed. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be that big, and then all of a sudden it started taking off like gangbusters. And you just can't ignore. And also, to be honest with you, for many investors, it is an ability to, to pick up what I would call more active management than many mutual funds. Mm -hmm. So I got another question for you. And, and it comes down, and this is more of a question about strategy. And, you know, I've had a lot of value investors on here growth investors, you know, a combination of both, you know, do you think it's a positive or a negative thing to pigeonhole oneself into being uh, one form of strategy or over another? I think the investment world is so complex. There's so many subsets that you have to focus in on a few mm -hmm. and you have to become good at those subsets. Mm -hmm. A value investor shifting into a day trader is virtually impossible. <laughs> we don't look at it the same way. We think the other side's an idiot. Um, why would you do that? Uh, so it's, it's, it's by definition of your value investor, and I still consider myself a value investor, but I'm willing to go out of the box because of realities. Sometimes the realities, like Buffett, getting old, anticipating death, knowing that value investing takes quite a bit of time to come to fruition, and we might not have it, uh, that time sequence at least, to be around to see how it worked out. Uh, we kind of shift over to a couple of other, putting a little money into other shorter orientations. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not into day trading, but I'm not against a, a little sector rotation to pick up on drifts in sectors or, or the same type theme as you break it down into even the further refinements. Mm -hmm. um, um, and one of the things I, I, if you're going to make big money, you have to recognize, and this is where I disagreed uh, with Investors Business Daily and Bill um, O'Neill. Um, he, you know, he advocates a small number. Mm -hmm. And um, I never could quite go with this, the 10 or so, many changes in the number of stocks that he picks. And, 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 and I will go on the other side of the coin uh, with uh, Benjamin Graham that says you go to 15 stocks and you buy good portions of your money, of your wealth in these stocks because the, the bigger the commitment uh, in dollar amount to a particular stock, the more research you will do. 
And the more confidence you have to have in that friggin' stock instead of buying 100 shares of three bucks and you don't even know the friggin' name, uh, it sounded good. Um, you don't do that when you put, you know, uh, one-tenth of your entire investment portfolio into a stock. You know damn well everyone, including who the members of the board of directors are. So it's a function of that. So my answer is you've got to have a little bit more than one, um, but you better have a relatively few strategies. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, people have got to recognize that anytime there are less than 55 equivalent positions in a stock, you're not efficiently diversified at the 90% confidence level, mm -hmm. and that uh, they can back to haunt you either the sector or the company, event risk, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, if you're going to get above market, above index returns of what you're comparing yourself against, you're not going to make it with 55 stocks. So um, I just come back and caution you what uh, the old man Benjamin Graham said, have 15 positions. Uh, move on from Bill O'Neill and have 15 positions and uh, um, commit yourself to that with no fewer than uh, two stocks in any one industry and, and then roll the dice because if you can't come up with 15 ideas, uh, either whatever you're, micro or a value investor, you probably should be in an index and, and staying home and not watching the market. So as you know, this is uh, this podcast is more of a micro is it is a micro cap focused podcast, you know. And you know, for me, I really learned about investing, and it helped in developing my investing style and strategy by really looking at micro caps because you had to do so much more due diligence and really dig into the financials and uh, and and also meet very interesting people in the space and get their thoughts, you know, them being thought leaders, you know. So I wanted to know your thoughts about this in the sense that do you think microcaps is a good place to start? Like, would you recommend that for students? Maybe not so much investing, but it, because I don't know if you really can as a professor, but um, you know, at least is a good place to really dip their feet in and really try and understand the market as best they can. Based on what I've seen of recent date with students, I would say I would like them to get their feet wet on the topic. I don't think I would want them to be exclusively mm -hmm. in that area. Um, I think it's a good way to get your analytic skills, and I think you should spread it across uh, at least a higher level, uh, mid-cap, if you want to, 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 to still stay within the sure. larger the paintbrush. Yeah. Yeah. Pick out the mid-cap and the S&P 1500 and uh, search some of those and then play around with micro stuff that doesn't even show up on the radar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, I can see that. I think it would be advantageous. You will hone your skills. You've got a good chance of going to some convention or uh, some company meeting where you can actually get a, a touch and a feel about management. Um, you're not going to get that. Uh, most likely, even in the mid-cap on the 1500, uh, you're not going to got a small chance of talking to people. If you're in the investment world, uh, you can get an appointment with anyone might be three months or four months out. You got it at two o'clock at uh, two p.m. Uh, you make it or you you don't meet the guy or the female in this particular case nowadays. But uh, uh, you got to be in the investment business. Um, uh, so you know, uh, I, yeah, I would I would recommend it, uh, and I would first uh, make a few choices, see how they work out before you jump full hog into the micro cap or mini cap or whatever the <laughs> definition is today now keep switching and size keep switching because the markets have advanced and of course you one thing that uh, the professionals will say you know uh, spend more time and attention on the individual investment than the overall market mm -hmm. um, but there again you, you know you, you sit there and it's very hard to segment yourself from irrational exuberance and uh, individual stocks so of course I follow the uh, Benjamin Graham Warren Buffett modeling closely and uh, right now for the, uh, the stock market defined as slightly over 4,000 stocks, so it's a rather extensive universe. Uh, the price to intrinsic value as of uh, August 30th uh, was the 31st, I guess, uh, was 1.39. Mm -hmm. And so that is uh, kind of extended above that 1.2. Um, um, of course, we saw much higher in the crash of October of 87. So we're 1.7-ish, if memory serves me correctly. So we still have a lot of ways to go. And, of course, you always have to sit back and say, well, wait a second. 
Uh, how's the economy doing? Are we going to see greater growth in the economy? Obviously, we've had a transformation from the dead economics of Obama to the, at least from an economic viewpoint, a vastly changed and growing economy, uh, a GDP growth rate substantially higher than even the norm, and, and under the Obama administration, below the norm. Um, uh, uh, and so this is going to be an interesting characteristic than which earnings, because of tax reductions, regulatory reductions, and I must confess, hopefully very favorable trade agreements compared to the horrible trade agreements we have had since, really since the 1990s that have been detrimental to American businesses. Um, I am looking forward uh, to a more long-term expansion of the growth rate of corporate earnings, mm -hmm. um, which then would make the valuation coming down not going up because of the growth rate going up. Mm -hmm. And so at one point, uh, Three nine, it's a warning sign, but it's it's not clear if it's a disaster sign. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to look at the lay of the land and see what happens. But of course, that's uncertainty, and that uh, always spooks the stock market. Uncertainty is not a friend of anyone dealing with investments, and it's unclear, clearly unclear, where we are going to be going on a political and social front. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. To shift gears here a little bit, you know, going back to some of your own personal experience, uh, what what would you say is an experience that guided your investing strategy the most? A experience, a single experience, or two or three. Probably the most important <laughs> thing was coming up with a defined discipline and adhering to it. Mm -hmm. I am half Portuguese. And procrastination is a way of life for the Portuguese. If we do it within the next three months, it's timely. <laughs> um, you cannot do that in the investment world. Mm -hmm. So time is dear, it's short. Um, you have to have a dedicated orientation. So the most important thing I can pass on is sit down, lay out your qualities, positives, and then look at your negatives. And then sit down and try to match the investment philosophy that meets your temperament and your orientation. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most important thing I can pass on is match it. Because uh, it's, it's like what Buffett talks about in many uh, circumstances. You, in an auditorium, you can put up a sign that says classical music or you could put up a sign that says jazz and you're going to have two different populations come in. Nothing wrong with either population horribly wrong if you wanted to see classical uh, hear classical music and you go to the jazz all things said and done uh, you might be a jazz fan too but uh, you get the gist here and um, the last thing to do is to say I'm going to be a day trader and you don't have the discipline or the fortitude to accept it so um, match things mm -hmm. be honest with yourself how much reduction in value can you suffer without having a heart attack or throw up, and uh, then does it match your, your, your orientation and the commit of time you might have? Mm -hmm. And it does change over time. Um, I am always amazed how uh, younger people like to do uh, micros, which is, makes sense to me because of their orientation and the risk-averseness. Uh, lack of risk-averseness would be a better way of saying it. Um, uh, yet they don't have the time to really do it. I mean, they've got family. They've got work. They may be going to school, um, you know. Uh, it, uh, no, it, you better stick to uh, uh, mid-cap, come up with some interesting stocks that you have that doesn't require that you had to look at it uh, this Thursday uh, at 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. after you got off from work. Mm -hmm. um, um, you can postpone at least to Sunday sure. at 8 p.m. so you can make the trade on Monday. Uh, that type of orientation. So be true to yourself, really, and I will say this, my observation over time, individuals tend to talk big about their ability to uh, want to be a risk taker mm -hmm. when in reality they are substantially less. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe based on that advice, was there one thing that happened in your life where you're like, okay, I need to make sure that my investing strategy matches who I am as a person and where I am in, in my life? 
I'm thinking about a couple of investments that I just failed to act upon. And probably one of my biggest regrets, we all have regrets sure. in investment business. I mean, you got the next couple hours, I'll go over all of them. I was going to say, we learn the most from our failures. So, uh, <laughs> so. Well, I, I, that's an old saying. I don't particularly like it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Who does? I, I, I want to make a lot of money off of my, my success stories instead. But, you know, I, I, right at an early get-go, uh, I said, I'm going to buy Google. Right at the get-go. I mean, this is right after Hamburg and Whist brought it public in the Dutch auction. And I can't remember the price, but it was cheap, whatever the heck the price was. I kept saying, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get around to it. Then it got a little ahead of me. And I said, well, I'll wait till it corrects. Mm -hmm. Wrong. Never did. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. And so what I come back to is that's lacking dedication and discipline. So when you identified it, committed to it, you should have friggin' Stanley gone out and bought it. Um, and then when you see things, and friends, you'll see things that right in front of you that you don't recognize that could make you a fortune. I reorganized Franklin Resources for Charlie Johnson many a year ago, and I kind of scratched my head and said, well, he'll eke out a living, but it never do particularly well. I won't buy a stock that was two bucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you know the story of Franklin Resources subsequent. I mean, just gangbusters, and um, um, also the uh, the ninety bull market, et cetera. And so there's something. It's it's even on top of it, you'll miss it. So when you find one you're committed to, don't sit around and say I'm going to do it tomorrow, and um, jump on it. And I might add uh, one thing I like about Buffett is Buffett every so often goes through investments that he committed. He was going to buy, never got around to buy them, and how much money he lost. <laughs> so, so my next question then is, you know, what advice, and you've given a lot of advice already, but in particular, you know, for individuals that want to learn more about the stock market and investing, what advice do you have for them? That probably comes down to uh, the most commonly asked question that students ask me. Um, they don't understand personal finance. And um, it's gotten especially uh, more difficult as companies moved away from defined uh, uh, benefit plans uh, to defined contribution plans, and the, the responsibility falls on them. And that is don't rely on professionals. Rely on yourself. Get yourself into self-knowledge. Do the reading. There are so many books out there that and sometimes conflict with each other. But there's plenty of reading material. There's no excuse that you cannot become a good, if not excellent, manager of your own portfolio. I have observed over the years kind of the shocking orientation. I listen to, quote, professional investment managers, um, especially of those uh, associated with larger institutions and how little training they really truly have and how little lack of understanding they have of truly selecting investments they rely on some computer program to do this and that um, and I'm not I'm not demeaning them they are one step ahead of most people so they, they do have value there but no rely on yourself uh, uh, as we know and from investment management that in, in a five-year period you know basically you got maybe five percent of the group, they can now perform their benchmark on a risk-adjusted basis every year for the for the last five years, and it goes down from there. Um, professional and it varies according to years, so it's all over the map. So I'm making a general statement here. You know, 80% of the time they can't outperform the benchmark on a risk-adjusted basis, and then you got the 5%, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on. Um, I listened to a major investment uh, analytic uh, person um, examining managers for pension funds, et cetera, to hire. And he said over his entire lifetime, he found five individuals that could really understand the market and anticipate what was going on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a small number. So you might as well rely on yourself, uh, become uh, cognizant of what you are and where you want to be, do the reading, and I think you'll come out ahead. As Peter Lynch, which is a name no one really remembers any longer, uh, Fidelity Magellan, and as Peter Lynch said way back, this would be now 30 years ago or whatever, 
Um, a typical family spends less time on their investment and in their retirement portfolio than they do in selecting a refrigerator. And I'm not sure if it's that little of a time anymore, but it's certainly an apropos story. Mm -hmm. It still holds water that people just do not spend time on this subject matter. And above all, I can give your younger listeners out there about friends, life goes by so quickly you won't even know it. Because the next thing you know, you're already retired, you're past 70 years, and you're collecting Social Security, whatever you're going to get then. But at least you've enjoyed life, but it goes back by extremely quickly. I just cannot tell you how quickly life went by. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, it's you you gleaned a lot of wisdom over the years and you've definitely provided so much today. And, you know, for my audience to go and find more information on some of your uh, uh, publications and your articles that you've put out there, where can they go and read everything they want to know that you put out? Actually, I've got a lot of articles that are out there and, and a number that are coming up. Uh, needless to say, nowadays you can Google, but fortunately Pepperdine is going to put a website up with a listing of all of the articles, and I've got articles going to 2005. Last year, for example, I did nine different articles. Um, a couple, and The ones I would actually recommend that, uh, that if people out there like exchange-traded funds, ETFs, um, we did an article uh, in Financial Services Review uh, um, a couple of years ago, it's a little dated, not overly, because the topic is, is really relevant. It's just the numbers have somewhat changed, mm -hmm. but the outline is still there. About. I think that would be a very good starting point. They like what I have to say on that particular article as it interfaces with ETFs. Then you can do a little bit more research to pull up. And at all times, anyone wants to ever contact me at dstanley at pepperdine.edu, I'll send you the entire list. <laughs> Professor, I want to firstly thank you for a great class uh, a couple a semester or two ago, and uh, and thank you again for joining me today on the program. I really do appreciate it. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Professor Stanley, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.